0: Corner Fringe Ministries presents The Hell of Torah, Part 5, with Daniel Joseph. I think we're in Part 5 of this theme, the, the Hell of Torah. Now, last week, we began to look at something known as the structure of the faith, where we found faith is not just a conceptual thing, alone, stuck in our minds. It's much more than that. Faith is faith of action. That's what true faith is. Through works, through obedience, we know faith is made complete, which makes perfect sense when you consider the fact that all things are established on the testimony of two or three. This is a principle woven throughout the tapestry of the word. All things are established on the testimony of two or three, and this includes the faith itself. Because faith without works, it is dead, right? Faith without works is not faith, it is deception. Well, today we're going to continue to look at this structure of faith, and we're going to, basically, we're just going to compile some more evidence to show that this structure, it really does exist. The pages of Scripture are riddled with it. And by further identifying this reality, by looking at the variety of examples given in Scripture of said structure, we're going to continue to prove the legitimacy of the Torah, the importance of God's law for our lives. So, with that said, I want to begin today by taking you to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And here we're going to discover, Paul is actually going to tell us, he's going to reveal this beautiful secret of how, to obtain understanding of God's word. How do we do this? What's the secret? There is a secret. How do we obtain understanding of God's word? Well, listen to what he says. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moshe, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of of what was passing away. Remember, Moses used to speak directly to God and the Shekinah would come down upon him. The glory of God radiated from his face. It was awesome because it was the voice of the Lord. He encountered the voice of the living God and the Shekinah was glowing. And we move on in verse 14. But their minds, speaking of of Israelites, but their minds were blinded for until this day, this same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Where you say Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Because the veil is taken away in Mashiach. But even to this day, when Moshe is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, we find that to obtain understanding, to obtain understanding of Torah, to be able to see that that inner depth, that innermost beauty of Torah, you have to have faith in Yeshua. There's no other way. Without faith in Yeshua, the veil is still going to lie on your heart. It's going to blind your eyes. You can give your life to the study of Torah. You can give your life to the study of the Scriptures. You can study them until you're blue in the face, and you will never obtain true understanding until you give in to the Mashiach, to the Messiah Yeshua. There is no, you're totally blind. There is no sight apart from Him. So first things first that I just want to establish right off the bat. We're told from Scripture, clearly, to obtain understanding, this is how it's done. Now what's interesting is, I want to take you back to the Old Testament. I want to take you back to a psalm, Psalm 119. Because what's so fascinating is this particular psalm talks about the exact same thing that Paul just addressed. Exact same thing. What's interesting is he describes it just a little bit differently on how to obtain understanding. Look at what the psalmist says. You through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Ponder that statement. More understanding than all the teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Because he keeps the commandments of God, he has more understanding than the ancients. More understanding than all the teachers because he keeps the commandments of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul will tell you that understanding comes through faith in Yeshua. Go to Psalm 119. What are we told? Understanding comes through keeping the commandments. Do you see it? Do you see the structure of the faith? What is the structure of the faith? Faith in Yeshua and keeping his commandments. I just brought two passages together to give you an example of the structure itself. Now you may say, Daniel, well, that's pretty far out there. Reaching into the New Testament, plucking out a passage, and going back into the old and, and like somehow trying to make them gel together Well, they do. We're talking about the same thing, keep in mind. We're talking about understanding. This is is what's at stake here. This is what we're getting at. And we're told that it's by faith in 2 Corinthians, and that we're told it's by obedience in Psalms. Is one right and the other wrong? No. They are both right. And let me further prove this through Scripture. I'm going to take you to another passage. This is Yeshua speaking. And he brings it all together. What we took from Psalms into Corinthians. He just brings it all together. Look at what he says. This is is amazing. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you see it? Structure of the faith. you're looking at the structure right there. One of the most most condensed forms of it. Right here. Notice what he says. If you love me. In other words, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, something will happen. You will respond to that trust. What's the course of action? You will keep my commandments. It's the structure of the faith. It's faith with obedience. Now, what's fascinating and this ties in with Psalm 19, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that what Yeshua says as he continues, he reveals something beautiful and it comes into play with understanding. Now look at what he says as we go on to verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So if I follow the structure of the faith, If I love him and keep his commandments, if I believe in him, put my faith in him, and do as he says, what takes place? We're given the Holy Spirit. This is the effect that it will have. Well, let me take it a step further. What's the effect of the Holy Spirit? What effect is the Holy Spirit going to have on my life? Well, look at what he says as we continue. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. doesn't say someone who's, who has them, who has their Bibles open at home, who studies. That's not what it says. It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them. You are actively participating in this book. You are doing them. It is He who loves me. You are the true ones who believe in Yeshua. The doers of the word, not hearers only. Now look at what he says. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, And I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is the response. You adhere to the structure of the faith. You believe in Yeshua. You keep his commandments. The response is you're given the Holy Spirit. And that spirit does something. Manifest the Son of the living God. He manifests Yeshua. Now we continue in verse, dropping down to verse 26. But the helper, the Ruach HaKodesh, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Spirit himself is going to instruct us, is going to reveal the secrets, the mysteries that are found in this book. It is through that Spirit that you're going to be given the tool necessary to see that stereogram, that biblical stereogram that is concealed from everyone else to where you will know more than the ancients. You will know more than the teachers because you follow the structure of the faith. You're going to be given great mysteries. Let me give you some, let's jump into this potpourri of different passages where we see the structure of faith. It's everywhere. I want to give you an example, or a couple examples. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Yes, all who desire to live godly, and Messiah Yeshua will suffer persecution. Do you see it? Look at it. The structure of the faith is right there. Notice what he says. It's amazing how quickly we read over things and we don't retain them and we don't understand. But then we go back and it's like a whole new world, right? Yes, all who desire to live godly. First descriptor given, live godly, righteously, holy, keeping his commandments. That's what this is talking about. In what? In who? Messiah Yeshua. This is the structure of the faith. Live godly in Messiah Yeshua. Well, this one certainly is not as enjoyable as what Yeshua told me I would get. Yeshua told me I would get the Holy Spirit when I do these things. Paul's not as fun. He tells me the things to expect are persecution. These are examples, but here's another thing to look at. We have pieces of evidence that will describe whether you are truly a believer in Yeshua. Because these are pieces of evidence that should exist in your life. Does the Ruach HaKodesh dwell in your temple? It's supposed to, right? Are you being persecuted? If you're not, these are some of the things you need to ask yourself. Where am I in my relationship with the Lord Yeshua? Acts 20, let's go to a different passage. Now, this is, this is Paul. He, he, just give you a backdrop, he's speaking to the elders from Ephesus. He called them, or he's in Miletus, but he called the elders from Ephesus, and he's talking to them. And he says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Yeshua. This was the gospel. This was the message that the apostle Paul preached. Do you see the structure of faith? Because it's there repentance towards God, what do we do when we repent? We stop doing the things that the world wants us to do, that Satan wants us to do, and we turn to God. And we start keeping his commandments. It's the structure of the faith. Over and over again, this record keeps playing. Are we picking up on it? Are we picking up on these things? Going to Acts 2.37, remember Shavuot, or Pentecost. Where these Jews in the Diaspora, they're all coming to Jerusalem. They've seen awesome things. They behold the mysteries, the prophets, uh, what they foretold are coming to pass. Seen this miraculous sign of men speaking in their own language. They heard the glories of God and they're awestruck. And look at, the, look at what happens here. This is Peter. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua Mashiach for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you again see the structure of the faith? It's right there. What does he say? Repent. That means I'm going to now turn from the fleshly desires from the world, and I'm going to do those things that God instructs in his words. I'm going to keep his commandments. And then he goes on to say, and be baptized in the name of Yeshua. Obviously, if I'm being baptized, the whole point of it is, as I believe Yeshua is the Messiah, and I believe God raised him from the dead on the third day. I'm going to go through the baptism of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Yeshua, because I believe it. It's a public profession. Statement of the faith. Over and over again, we are seeing these things. Because the Lord is trying to tell you something. Acts 10, 34. This is in regard to the Gentiles coming into the faith. Gentiles are coming into the faith. Listen to what Peter says. And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation who fears him, that's not it. Every nation who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Statement of the faith. In other words, fear. I believe in God. I believe he is going to do the things that he says he's going to do. And you know what? I'm going to work righteousness. This is the statement of the faith. Over and over again, you see it um, labeled a little bit differently, saying the exact same things. Let me take you to Revelation. Chapter 3, to the church of Philadelphia, which is the church we want to be. And listen to what he says. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word... And have not denied my name. Structure of the faith. You have kept his word. You have kept his commandments. And you have kept the testimony of who he says he is. He is the son of God. This is powerful. Revelation 24. And I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded. For what? For their witness to Yeshua and for the Word of God. The structure of the faith. Their testimony that Yeshua is the Messiah and for the Word of God because they would not compromise the commandments of God. They would not do it. Over and over again, we see the structure of the faith. I want to give you one more example. This is one of my personal favorites. It's something I addressed during this last Passover, and that is the story of the Exodus. And this is, I would say, perhaps one of the most comprehensive visuals we have in regard to the structure of the faith, how it works, what it looks like in real life. Now, going back to the book of Exodus, we find that the children of Israel, they had been bondage for over 400 years, be exact 430 years. They are in bondage to the Egyptians. And God, hearing the cries of his people, at this time, he's moved. He's moved with compassion. And he proceeds to set them free. And he does so by raining down judgment upon the Egyptians. And at the precipice of his judgment, right before he pours out the tenth and final plague, he instructs his people to do something peculiar. And that is... He instructs his people to kill a lamb. More specifically, a Pesach lamb, right? A Passover lamb. Now, if you look at the instructions the children of Israel were regarding the lamb, you realize they weren't just commanded to find, if you will, a pure and spotless lamb. Remember, this lamb could have no blemish. They were not just required to kill this lamb. They were not just required to eat of its flesh with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Actually, they were commanded to do something else with it, specifically something with the blood. And we discover what that is in chapter 12, verse 12, and we read, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So by Israel, applying the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, to the lentils, as we see here, we find that the Lord, through this blood, through this blood, he protected the lives of the children of Israel. They were spared death. They were spared the horrifying wrath of God. And already, right this, thus far, this, in, in this passage, in, or in the, even in the story of Passover, we begin to see the imagery of what? I begin to see the imagery of salvation. That's what's here. Salvation through the blood of the Lamb. And it's interesting, Paul has some commentary that parallels exactly what is happening here. Listen to what he says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were still sinners, Mashiach died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I mean, this is a perfect description to describe exactly what is happening in the story of Passover. Children of Israel, while they're in Egypt, they're sinners. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not living for God. Torah is not the law of the land. Yet, what did we find? God has mercy upon them. And he provided a way that they might be spared death, that they might be set free from bondage. And how was it done? It was done through the blood of the lamb. Through the blood of the lamb, they were justified. Through the blood of the lamb, they were set free. No blood, no life. Okay? No blood, no freedom to achieve freedom, to achieve life. They had to have faith. Faith in the fact that the blood could save them. Faith in the fact that when they applied the blood, I'm going to be preserved from the wrath that is coming. Right? So this is first and foremost the primary component of the structure of the faith. First and foremost, it's the faith. It's the blood. Now, continuing to look at the story in Exodus... I have to ask the question, and I asked it at Passover, does the story end when the children of Israel apply the blood to the door? I mean, I mean think about it. When the death angel, he passes over the homes, he, he looks at the blood, he passes over. When he passed over, did all the children of Israel magically vanish? Poof! And they're brought into the promised land. I mean, could you imagine all the Egyptians looking around, where'd all the Israelites go? I think they were raptured. What do you think? I don't know where they're at. I'm sorry, I couldn't help but poke a little bit of fun. My point is, when they applied the blood, it's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Actually, we find, as this story begins to unfold, it's right at this point that the structure of the faith begins to come into view, if you will. Because after the children of Israel applied the blood, then we discover the Lord does something. Yes, he begins to take them out of Egypt, and he brings them where? To the Red Sea. And what happens when they get to the Red Sea? They go through it. The Lord brings them through it. In other words, baptism. You just think about the structure of the faith. First things first, I have to believe. And when I believe, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to become baptized. This is exactly what happened to the children of Israel. In fact, look at Paul's commentary. He addresses it the exact same way, the children coming through the sea. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So when you look at the structure of faith today, what are believers in Yeshua supposed to do after they confess his name? They're baptized, right? In fact, even Ananias, you look at this story in Acts, and Paul has this revelation of Yeshua. There's no doubt he believes in him now. He hasn't ate in three days, he's blind. And Ananias comes to him, one of the first things that he says to him, why are you waiting? Rise, be baptized. There was a sense of urgency that comes. When you read the New Testament, there's a sense of urgency that comes when you profess your faith in Yeshua. You need to be baptized. You see the sense of urgency going back to the exodus. Immediately, the blood is applied and they're brought out and almost immediately, they are baptized. Same sense of urgency. But again, is this the end of the story? No, it's not. We discover that after the Lord brings them through the Red Sea, then he takes them to the mountain of God. He brings them to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, And what happens? Well, we read this, Exodus 19, 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled, verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. This is going back to what we talked about. God is fire. He descends upon the mountain in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. You'll get this description. Israel's looking at what? A fiery furnace. This is what they're looking at. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. Now, what does God do when he descends down upon this mountain in fire? The Lord delivers his commandments to the children of Israel. He delivers his Torah. And upon receiving his law, what happens to the children of Israel? Poof, I'm magically in the promised land. No, that is not what happens. They are not raptured up at that time. What comes next is the testing. That is what comes next. And um, this is where you're going to find the trials. This is where you're going to experience tribulations. This is where you're going to experience persecutions. All in this time frame. Why? I mean, I have to ask the question, why would God do all this? I like the version where you put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils, and I'm raptured into the promised land. That's my version. That's the version I prefer above all else. That's not the version that the children of Israel were given, was it? So here you have the blood, then you have the baptism, and then you have the giving of his commandments. And now comes the testing. Why the testing? Why go through this? Well, we're told, Deuteronomy 8, 1, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. That's why. Listen to me, people. You are in the wilderness. You are being tested to know whether or not you are going to obey him, whether or not you are going to compromise Please understand, your faith does not end because you said a prayer once upon a time. It doesn't end. When you commit your life to Yeshua, it's only the beginning. Amen? Just as the Lord takes Israel through the wilderness 40 years, so you're going to be tested. And many of you have faced trials, and many of you have faced tribulations. You've experienced sorrow. Some of you may even experienced hardcore persecutions. What defines us as believers, and I want you to listen to me very closely, what defines us as believers is how we respond to the testing. That's what will define you, who you really are. You're going to be put up when the fire begins to test you. We're going to know the impurities. The Lord is going to know what's going on. We got to hold the line of righteousness. You know things are getting so wicked and so vile. And I can tell you this right now: I have never spiritually fought like I have today in my life. I've never been in the spiritual warfare. I've never experienced anything like it, like I have this year. It's incredible. We are at war. Most people don't know because they're so distracted. But I got to tell you this: no matter. What it's going to cost you in this life, you cannot compromise. You can't do it. Moral of this story, the point of me sharing this with you, is if you want to enter into eternal life, you are going to have to follow the structure of faith. And it is going to require sacrifice. It's going to cost you everything in this life. You can take it to the bank. Right? But... Let me say this. Actually, let me take you to Philippians. I want to take you to Philippians because I want to talk about there is a, an understanding of believers that so often when they come into the faith, there is a joy there and it should be there. There is a freedom of being forgiven for sins. should be there. One of the travesties of what's not there is this intense pushing into the relationship. In other words, you say the prayer, you ask for forgiveness, you feel good, you feel joy, but then it stagnates. Then nothing begins to happen, although it is. Something is happening, but you just don't realize it. I want to take you to Philippians 3, and I want to share this with you. I threw this in uh, at the last second because it describes how we should be responding to our belief in Yeshua. Listen to what he says. Philippians 3, verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now, you think about that statement for a second. Awesome miracles were done through the Apostle Paul. Most unbelie- Some of the most unbelievable things mentioned in Scripture are through the Apostle Paul that you'll read. And here he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal. Look at this pressing. There's a forward motion. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. So the point I'm trying to make here is faith is not stagnant. It's constantly growing inside of us. It's constantly moving towards Yeshua, seeking him day by day. In fact, Paul likens the faith to a race in Corinthians. He likens it to a race. And when when the shot goes off, what do you think people do who are running a race? When that shot goes off, do they say, ah, they step back and start taking in the landscape? They go off running. And you see these analogies that Paul's using because he's taking spiritual concepts, bringing them down into the physical realm to impress them upon us to show us how the race is truly won. All right? First Corinthians 9.25, look at what he says. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others... I myself uh, should become disqualified. What an amazing statement! Paul fights the flesh, knowing his own life is on the line. He runs the race as though only one person's going to win. Paul tells us in Second Timothy, I didn't put it up here, but he tells us that if, 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 going back to what I was telling you, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What do you think he's saying? You're not going to be crowned if you're going to walk in rebellion. Bottom line. It's not going to happen. Let me take you back to Philippians, because Paul is going to show that the faith is supposed to be mature. It's supposed to grow. There's supposed to be a movement. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, all with affection of Yeshua HaMashiach, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. It's to abound. There's supposed to be a movement. There's supposed to be a forward motion. Think of it as a mountain. You're constantly climbing up. You're not stopping and coming back down. You're moving up until you reach the summit where Yeshua is. We are to abound in knowledge. Where do you suppose we get knowledge? The word of God. And all discernment. Where do you suppose we get discernment? Read Hebrews 4, read Hebrews 5. Discernment comes from the word of God. Let me ask you, are you abounding? Are you abounding? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in your life? Is that what you're doing? Are you literally pouring over these pages? He goes on in verse 10 to tell us why that you may approve the things that are excellent. This is why we have got to give ourselves, we have got to dedicate ourselves to Yeshua, to the study of his word, and not just the study, the application thereof to our lives. We study to do, right? We don't study for the sake of knowledge. We study to do. And in the midst of the study, we're going to be rewarded because now we're going to know the difference between good and evil. We're going to be able to prove the things that are excellent. Paul uses the exact same terminology in Romans. Read Romans chapter 2. In in, in regard to his own brothers, uh, he literally says, you approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law, being instructed out of the Torah. This is how we are going to prove the things that are excellent. And then he goes on, "That uh, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Mashiach being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are, by Yeshua HaMashiach, to the glory and praise of God. Let me take you to Ephesians 5. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now listen to this in verse 10. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Did you catch what he just said here? The fruit of righteousness presses in. It moves to find out what is acceptable to the Lord. If someone who studies Torah, um, it's someone who studies Torah and in, in the prophets, the all of Scripture, New Testament included, seeking it, pouring over it, we do it to do exactly what is said here in verse 10. What is acceptable to the Lord? That we may approve the things that are excellent. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Satan just maybe in his, you know, diabolical scheming of attempting to destroy the church, of attempting to destroy the faith itself, the structure of the faith if you will? You think Satan might just attempt to remove a component of the structure of the faith or attack it, right? I mean, we have to ask ourselves this question because we are at war. We're at war with the spiritual host of wickedness. Might he attempt to mess with the structure? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. Of course. But let me further ask, how might he do it? Well, let's just step back and look at the church today. What has Satan done? He's convinced a large majority that the law of God is done away with, that the law of God is no longer valid. Therefore, the sheep no longer do what? They no longer study it. They no longer read it. They don't read it for application. They don't read it for wisdom. They don't read it for knowledge, for truth, so that they can approve the things that are excellent. It's completely thrown out. And what is really happening here? What is really taking place? What do I see when I step back? I thought about it. What do I see Satan doing? And this is what I see him doing. He's breaking the communication between Yeshua and his sheep. Because what we find in the law of God, the Torah, is this. Torah is the voice of God. I want to give you some perspective. I want you to be able to share the perspective. Do You want to understand Torah in its truest light? Understand this. It is the voice of God. And if I had a nickel for every time someone would come up to me, I just want to hear from God. I'm praying, I'm praying, I just want to hear from God. My response is, when's the last time you read the word? It's his voice. Let me prove this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments. Did you catch that? If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the voice of God. What is it? His commandments. It's his spoken word. And then he goes on, which I shall command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. In other words, remember going back to Deuteronomy you go back to Deuteronomy 11, going to uh, 26, 27, 28, you start seeing something awesome. Blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. Blessings if you keep the commandments of God, and you're going to be cursed if you don't. Deuteronomy 30, again, looking, proving the voice of the living God is Torah. The Lord your God will make around, uh, make you around, abound in all the work of your hand, And the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. Going to verse 10. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes. Again, what is the voice? It's equated to keeping the commandments. It's the commandments themselves. His statutes, which are written in this book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You know, when a country is at war, one of the most important things that they rely upon in executing their missions and successfully conquering the enemy, defending their land, defending their people, their territory, one of the most important things that they need to deal with is in fact that they got to focus on is communication. Ask any general, ask any military strategist the importance of communication and they will tell you it is primary, it's imperative. One of the first things a military strategist will do when planning out how they're going to engage the enemy, one of the first things that's talked about is how to take out the communications. How, to t- how, do we, how are we going to disrupt their communications? Because when you do that, well, you can't receive orders. You can't receive orders from your generals, from your superiors. You can't receive intel from any enemy forces. You can't receive anything. You can't collaborate with each other. It's difficult to defend, almost impossible to attack. What is it? You destroy communications, it's total destruction. It is total chaos is what it is. And Satan knows it. He knows this. And the last thing he wants us to do is to have a clear line of communication with the Lord. He wants the church to be in disarray. He wants the church to be in confusion. He wants them to be blinded. This is what he wants, amen? We are at war, and we have to understand what he's doing. When you understand the fact that the Torah is the voice of God speaking to his people, giving them warning, giving them wisdom... Then you begin to start looking at Torah in a whole new light. No longer do you see it as this curse that needs to be avoided like a curse. You start reading it and start realizing this is the voice of my Lord Yeshua. It's for wisdom. It's for protection. It's so that I might approve the things that are excellent. Right? That I might be able to discern. It gives me discernment between that which is good and that which isn't good. Proverbs 19, 27 says this. Cease listening to instruction. It's interesting the Hebrew word there is actually musar. It's warning. Cease listening to warning or instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Over and over again, you go to Psalm 19, you will find the Torah. It's there to warn us. To warn us of our adversary, to warn us of ourselves of our own flesh. Listen to what Isaiah says, Isaiah 30, verse 9. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. First thing you need to identify here is those who are rebellious are identified as those who refuse to hear from Torah. Because ultimately, what are they refusing to hear? They're refusing to hear from God. Because it is the voice of God. And so here we see, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. I want to make something clear. It is true that while we are not justified by the law itself, but by faith in Yeshua, and while we know that the law itself has no power to save us, The question becomes what Paul asks in Romans 3.31, do we make void the law through faith? And his answer is certainly not. God forbid we establish the law. We move forward. We keep his commandments lest we be branded with the rebellious. And boil it all down, those who follow God's pattern of design, who follow the structure of the faith, who keep his commandments... They have the testimony of Yeshua. These are the ones that are going to be preserved through the fires of Torah, right? The fire is going to have no power over them. The music team can come back up. I'm going to close with one last passage. And again, it shows the structure of the faith, but I saved this one for the last because it's the Great Commission. The Great Commission, we've all heard of it. Matthew twenty eight eighteen And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The structure of the faith is right there. We're to go out, baptize people, in other words... Persuade them, tell them the truth, Yeshua is the Messiah. Baptize them, and then what else was supposed to happen? Teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you. These were Jews who were given his Torah, who were given the prophets. This is the structure of the faith. Shabbat shalom.